This is Justin, host of Obscura, a true crime podcast. Do you need a true crime fix? Obscura has atmospheric music and sound design. The show shines a spotlight on the darker things in life by taking a narrative approach to covering real murders, mysteries, missing persons, and more. What do I mean by narrative approach? On Obscura, we structure our episodes in such a way that they paint a narrative in your mind. With a heavy focus on victims and less-known cases, each week I'll take you on a deep dive into the darker side of history, mystery, and murder. Be warned, Obscura is not for the squeamish. Shocking crimes are covered in full detail, and real court and 911 audio is used when possible. If you're a true crime fan with a taste for the hard stuff, then Obscura has you covered. Each month sees the release of Obscura Black Label. Black Label is reserved for only the darkest cases. Finally, if you're a listener that likes a binge, Obscura has a large library of episodes ready for you to download now. You can find Obscura, a true crime podcast, on your podcast app of choice. Just search Obscura True Crime, and you can't miss our logo. Can we talk something else? Can we talk about something else? Hello. Out there. Condemned prisoners are of the very select few guaranteed to have their last words written in the paper and broadcast it. They also get to choose a last meal, which is equally as compelling, if not more so, than the final thoughts segment. When it comes to death, it really doesn't get much better than the whole Green Mile treatment, especially if you're a narcissist, which describes most who have earned the pomp and circumstance of an execution date. They must eat it up, everybody being nice, unlimited visits and phone calls, choice of food, choice of words, and of course this is all meant to be a reflection of society and not a gift. Also, the prisoner is well aware that they aren't about to be sent off to a farm and a loving family, but still, I am at times impressed by the whole deal, especially when the condemned forgoes all of the offering, and asks the executioner to get right to it. Welcome to Dark Topic, I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is a true crime happening. I'm good. David Edwin Mason was born December 2, 1956, in Georgia. Soon after his birth, David's parents, who were strict fundamentalist Christians, moved their two little girls and newborn baby boy to Oakland, California. David's father, Harrison Mason, was a steelworker, a no-nonsense type except when it came to enforcing his religious beliefs. His eldest son, in David, had been an unwanted child at the time of his birth, The burden of three kids had forced the Masons to relocate to Oakland. His mother Margie was a homemaker, and of course deeply religious like her husband. Though she'd eventually end up with a brood of eight children, David had been a mistake. A burden in those early years for the Masons, and almost never made it out of Georgia. Margie had done nearly everything she could to induce an accidental miscarriage. Something that she felt might fool God, like moving heavy furniture or riding horses a lot. But David Edwin Mason had arrived anyways, a little shook up, no doubt, 
and maybe the beating he'd taken in the womb had something to do with how he would develop. That and the continued beatings and poor treatment he received as a troublesome child have to be considered. Let's take a quick look at all of that. See if maybe we can get a little insight as to how a serial killer of elderly people might have been made. A young David Mason was quite aware that he'd been a mistake. He was told it all the time. Of his eventual seven brothers and sisters, it seemed he would be the whipping horse from the start, like in the womb, having been whipped around on a literal horse. But what really got to him was the humiliation. Sure, there was abuse. He was beaten with a switch, a belt, even an iron pancake maker. David Mason was kept in a locked room with boarded windows they called the dungeon for extended periods. His family would later explain that the boy couldn't be trusted alone with the other kids when the parents had to be away. He was once strapped to a workbench by his father, gagged, then beaten unconscious. This treatment, a result of David having been caught lighting a church on fire, or another time when he was caught standing over his baby brother's crib with a knife, he was beaten badly as well. But again, the humiliations were somehow worse. Like when he shit himself in the dungeon and his mother made him wear his soiled underwear on his head after having a cloth diaper fitted to him. This incident occurred in his 11th year. I'm sorry, that's not funny. He wouldn't last in the family much longer. David Mason is taken away after a school counselor gets the truth from him. Here's a quote from that intervener, quote, This young man is desperately in need of help if he is to straighten out, to develop emotional security and friendly feelings for his fellow man, before it is too late. At age 14, David is put into a group home, something like an orphanage, where he escapes from on multiple occasions, making his way back home, claiming to have been sexually abused and beaten in the institution, but his parents would send him back, not wanting the trouble, though they later claimed to have loved their little inchworm. David was small for his age, so this was his pet name. It wasn't a loving one, however. His parents and siblings dubbed him Inchworm, due to the size of his penis. <laughs> and that's not funny either. I mean, um, and we have a real nice Christian family here by the sounds. Uh, before we move on, I should mention that when David was only five years old, he made his first of over 20 lifelong suicide attempts at five years old, the first. Clearly, if he had that many suicide attempts, he was never that serious about taking his own life. But an attempt, as we all know, is a cry for help. And for David Edwin Mason to have cried out in this way at the age of five is quite telling. The method of uh, suicide he attempted, David swallowed a handful of prescription pills before setting his clothes on fire while in them. And what a nightmare. Well, the beginnings of one. Mason joined the Marines in his late teens. He didn't last long only three months before he was kicked out for reasons I couldn't uncover. This was maybe his first and last attempt at finding some path of stability. The rest of his journey would be more in sync with his troubled beginnings. Rocky, difficult, littered with pitfalls. In July of 1977, at the age of 19, David Mason entered the Western Welding Supply Company in San Leandro, California, under the pretense of needing supplies for work. Perhaps he actually did, but plans changed when the clerk, Virginia Jansen, turned around to fill out an invoice for the requested items. This is when Mason stabbed her in the back with a 10-inch ice pick, 
Virginia was then forced to empty the cash box and her purse. Mason collected close to 300 bucks for his trouble. He threatened the wounded woman before fleeing, promising to find and kill her if she reported the incident to police. Despite this, Virginia still fingered his photo when given a selection by investigators whilst recovering in hospital. David Mason, hearing he was being sought after, soon turned himself in. He pled guilty to this disturbing and quite violent crime. Because of his cooperation, however, he would serve only two years and was released on July 13th of 1979. Having missed only one full summer for robbing and threatening the death of a woman whom he gouged with an ice pick. And that's a pretty sweet deal. He must have thought so too, as Mason didn't follow through with his threat to Virginia, though I'm sure the terror she felt upon learning of his release was payback enough. Sporting fresh ink from his prison stint, Mason now has the German words Weiss macht tattooed on his arm, which translates to white power. Mason at this point made his way back to his childhood stomping grounds, or maybe more accurately, the place where he got stomped during his childhood. The tattoo lends us a sense of where David Mason is headed here, and it's clearly not in the greatest direction. White power tattoos, even when somewhat disguised by the German language, are a pretty good indicator of poor decision-making and a commitment to a less-than-savory lifestyle uh, that will probably be interrupted by more prison stints. And he proves this right away. March 6th of 1980, less than a year since his release, Mason visits the home of 73-year-old Joan Picard. The elderly woman remembered David as a troubled teenager whom she'd hired on occasion to do yard work and odd jobs around the house. Joan had felt sorry for David back then and had at times invited him inside for tea, cookies, and to talk about God. Also, and this was the big mistake, to show off her coin collection. Mason, now in his early 20s, remembers this, remembers this kind woman with the coin collection. And when he shows up at her door, he is much more imposing than he had been as a scrawny teenager. Joan is maybe a little surprised by the visit, but being a woman of faith, she invites him inside to catch up. Once the door closes, Mason pulls out his ice pick and demands she give up her coins and any other valuables. She is initially in disbelief, then she's disappointed, voicing her opinion that David should be ashamed of himself as he forces her upstairs. Mason is aware of the home security system and that Mrs. Picard has panic buttons around the home. Once upstairs, she reaches for one, and Mason grabs her from behind before choking her unconscious. When Joan wakes up, she finds her wrists tied with electrical cord and Mason ransacking her home. She shouts out that she'd rather have him have everything than to believe what he was doing. This is when Mason returns and rips her cardigan off, buttons popping everywhere. She is later found in her blue skirt and brassiere. A sexual assault occurs at this point, or maybe it happens after he strangles the poor woman to death using a wire garrote that he tightens by twisting a pencil. A brutal death, preceded by a brutal beating, apparently, as her daughter would end up finding her mother bruised and bloody in the pantry downstairs two days later. There is a blood trail leading from upstairs to where Mason had stashed the old woman. That is how her daughter was able to find her. Her daughter found her bound and choked with wire, half-naked, uh, the wire was from a clock radio that gave investigators a timestamp. The clock was frozen at 12.29 p.m. Lunch. 
Perhaps Joan Bacard had offered David Mason to join her for a bite. Instead, he'd done this. The coin collection was later recovered at a local pawn shop. Mason had sold the collection that same day for $85. Two weeks later, on March the 20th of 1980, in Fremont, California, Donald Guion exits his vehicle just after midnight. He is parked in his garage, and his wife is inside waiting on him. A shadow rushes towards Donald. In the dim light provided by a lone bulb, he can tell it wears a nylon stocking over its face and decides he should defend himself. This is David Mason, of course, and he has switched up his ice pick for a 38 caliber pistol. But his prospective victim pays it no mind as he grabs the lid of a garbage can and smashes Mason over the head with it. He then begins shouting for his wife to call police, and Mason smashes him back with the butt of the pistol, but then flees into the night, out the open garage door he'd snuck in through, when Donald's wife begins hollering bloody murder. I get the idea that Mason hadn't known she was in the house. If so, this likely saved her husband from hollering bloody murder in the literal sense. August 19th, 1980. An 83-year-old war hero that Mason had previously been acquainted with is found murdered in his home by a Meals on Wheels delivery driver. The old man, known as Nico to Mason, had paid a young David Mason for sexual favors and was a well-known pervert in the community. Reports say that the um, sexual activity between this old man and Mason, his name is, I do have his full name, but I'm not sure that he was uh, molesting kids in the neighborhood. I'm not 100% sure on that, that this is, but uh, from my research, it looks like, yeah, this guy was a known pervert. And uh, he was molesting David in exchange for cash in his defense. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's molesting kids. I mean, there's no defense here. And he was doing this at his cottage near Mason's elementary school and in uh, the old war hero's car. He was uh, getting sexual favors from David Mason, a young David Mason exchange for cash. David Mason had a history of what we today call sex work. He would blow guys for cash or drugs, and it's possible he got into this life as a result of being taken advantage of by this now-murdered 83-year-old man. Nico had his World War I service ring stolen, along with 16 bucks. The investigation and later admission from Mason revealed that the victim had opened the door to a vicious attack. He'd been shoved to the floor where his spine fractured, then was beaten nearly to death before being strangled. Mason would later share that he had simply been looking for something to do, so he paid Nico a visit. For old times' sake. November 16th, 1980. The developing case of the so-called Oakland murders counts another elderly victim. 75-year-old widower Antoinette Brown is living alone in her second-floor apartment of a four-floor building. David Mason knows, as he tracks her movements, that she won't be living here for long. He enters the apartment's underground garage soon after Mrs. Brown returns home in what he later describes as a full-sized American vehicle. A witness will identify David Mason as the stranger they saw later leaving the building after exiting the elevator. This after he had entered the elderly woman's apartment and beat, sexually assaulted, then strangled her to death from behind with uh, silk garments. A neighbor of Antoinette's had invited her to a Thanksgiving dinner the following day. When she failed to show up and said neighbor noticed two newspapers piled in front of her door early in the week following, he contacted her sister. This is one of those apartment buildings that has a community of, like, uh, senior citizens in it. 
and they all look out for one another. The two, the two being the neighbor and this victim's sister, would soon discover the grisly scene. The body was covered in bruises and cuts. Her neck, like the others, was broken from the intense method of death. Jewelry and a purse were missing. Antoinette had been left face down on her bed with her slip pulled up over her waist and her brassiere pulled down. The age of the victim, the method of murder, and the way in which the body was left, beaten, ravaged, strangled with a garrote, were reminiscent of the Joan Picard murder only months previous. Investigators began to suspect that they had a developing serial killer on their hands. But by now, David Mason was done developing into one and was already there and still had room to grow. Eleven days later, November 27th of 1980, Mason had been living with a gay friend named Robert Groff earlier in the summer of 1980. David Mason would later describe himself as a prolific hunter of gays, meaning he wasn't super gay himself, but didn't mind providing sexual favors in exchange for money and food and board. Mason claims that he contracted herpes from Groff and was pretty pissed about it. So on Thanksgiving of 1980, he paid a visit to Groff, who was a dog breeder, and got drunk on whiskey with him. Mason claimed to be upset about how much more attention Groff gave his dogs over him, which sounds pretty gay to me. That night when Groff was sleeping, Mason shot him in the face with his 38. He then poured the remaining whiskey on the body and covered it with a blanket, which was his way of, quote, retarding decomposition. And that, forgive me, but it's too tempting, sounds pretty retarded to me. I mean, saying it's retarding decomposition, wouldn't that be slowing it? And don't you want to speed it up? I don't know. Mason steals some checks from his recent murder victim. This is his fourth murder of the year and goes off to have a party. Little over a week later, on December 6th of 1980, Dorothy Lang, a 72-year-old single occupant of another second-floor Oakland apartment, is making a lot of noise up there. That's what her neighbors below are thinking when at around 9 p.m. they hear thumping around as if Dorothy is running around up there. She is, while she's running away from David Mason, who had shown up at her door, forced his way in upon Dorothy opening in a crack, then chased the old woman down with a crescent wrench, tackled her to the floor, broke many of her ribs by kneeling on her as he beat her with a wrench, then manually strangled her to death. He rapes the poor woman at some point. This is obvious by the autopsy findings of tearing to her vagina. Mason is collecting items of value when he hears pounding on the floor below him and a voice asking loudly, in a muffled way, if Dorothy is okay. Mason throws his voice and replies, Yes! <laughs> I'm just fine, dear. He quickly flees the scene out through the balcony screen door and by climbing down to street level. The next morning, the concerned neighbor decides to check on Dorothy and finds her apartment door open. Inside, the neighbor soon discovers the body. It's in the bedroom, naked from the ankles to the neck. The bottom garments pushed down, the top pushed up. A bloody bedsheet covers the elderly woman's face. And Jesus, you know, these are grandmas and grandpas. Let's take a quick break here to make sure I go to hell and uh, play some ads. How about? Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan. But the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by uh, the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. 
I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. <laughs> Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, there's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, it's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient and it's an amazing value especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Today. All right, everybody, Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great, long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12-infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix, nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks. All right, everybody, Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog with my little family. We are about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here. And I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands Food, actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone could do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. 
Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash darktopic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash darktopic to check it out. Badlandsfood.com. The rest of this story is a bit of a cool down. David Mason seems to drift into straight robbery and is not so concerned with murder. Maybe it's the spirit of the season taming him. On December 10th of 1980, less than a week since his last killing, one that shook him up, not because of its brutal nature, but because he felt he'd been very close to being caught, pretending to be an old lady to tenants banging on the floor from below as you rape and strangle to death the old woman you're disguising your voice to be is a bit much, it turns out, even for a devil like David. David Mason, I should mention, reminds me a little of David Most, the first killer I covered on Dark Topic, episode 20 in the Dark Topic catalog if you're interested. Their names are close, but so are their looks, and their nature in being disturbed alcoholics with homosexual guilt and a penchant for taking out their angst on easy targets, then claiming remorse. Bullies made from bullying. Frenetic, lost souls, desperately looking for a way to make it all stop, eager to end it when their power was finally taken from them. And sorry, let's move on here. Where was I? December 10th? Four days past the murder of yet another widow in Dorothy Lang. I assume she was a widow, as Mason stole a wedding ring from her, but I could be wrong about that. It was in the afternoon when Mason knocked on the door of an elderly couple living in Castro Valley and pretended to be a firewood salesman. The couple were interested. David Mason promised to return around 6 p.m. with the wood. John and Arlene Vasco invited Mason in out of the cold when he eventually returned and offered him dinner while they discussed firewood. Mason said he was waiting on his partner to show up with the wood. Once finished eating, he pulled out a pistol and two sets of handcuffs, then secured the couple to their chairs. He didn't want to hurt them. This is true. He just wanted their valuables. Mason left the scene with over 40 grand worth of jewelry and coins. It turns out that Mason had done time with Mr. Vasco's coin dealer, and this was a planned hit. Thankfully, nothing else to see here. I think the couple probably won him over by inviting him in for dinner. And again, it was like this was supposed to just be a straight-up uh, robbery, and he, he kept it that way. A week later, on December 17, 1980, Mason robbed a jewelry store of 22 grand worth of items. He'd gone in pretending that his wife had put a deposit on a necklace. As the clerk sifted through the necklaces, looking for the one Mason was claiming he was to buy for his wife for Christmas, the killer, and now jewel thief apparently, pulled his gun and bullied his way to another score. There was a home invasion Mason performed with an accomplice on a jeweler. They managed to get away with about nine grand after tying the poor guy to his bed and shoving a gun in his face. On January 6th of 81... Mason rang in the new year by fleeing from a speed trap after being clocked in a 50 going 80 in his Dodge Charger. Mason took the chase to the limit, ending up rolling from the Charger at a dead end and escaping successfully on foot. Unfortunately for him, he left some documents behind with his name on them and his parents' address. On January 22nd, investigators showed up at David Mason's parents' home. You'll remember they were devout Christians, maybe a little heavy-handed about it, and uh, they were quick to start telling the truth. One of Mason's siblings, who'd been in close contact over the years with their troubled little inchworm, came forward with a tape cassette. It was labeled, 
David E. Mason. Epitaph. David had mailed this to his brother and said that it needed to be heard if anything happened to him. While this probably wasn't what Dave meant in uh, something happening to him, he meant like, you know, if I get killed, release this, don't do it when I'm on the run here. But finally, the letdown from his kin paid off in a way. On the tape was David Mason confessing to all of the crimes that we've already gone over here. On February 3rd, Mason robbed another jewelry store, this time under the pretense of buying a Valentine's Day gift for his girlfriend. He shoved a pistol in the clerk's face as she showed him their selection. Mason got away with nearly 50 grand worth of jewelry. He had tied the clerk to her chair and turned the open sign to closed. Before leaving, he told the clerk, quote, It doesn't matter if you can ID me because they already know who I am. That's why I'm not going to kill you. Mason was eventually tracked to a local Holiday Inn where he was arrested without incident the following morning. They had been on his tail already and knew his vehicle. Surveillance tape from the jewelry store assisted in narrowing the search area. It's kind of all fizzling out here, isn't it? Like he just turns into a jewel thief and gets arrested and uh, the serial killing stops. But no, he is found in custody with weapons on him on three separate occasions. One of these weapons was a shank made from a pen and a paper clip and melted all together. Another was a phone cord and receiver he'd stolen from the visitation room. It seemed he wanted to, had to, harm somebody. And if he couldn't get out, he'd do it inside. Mason, by the way, was intelligent. I didn't bother making that clear, but yeah, he had a good brain, like many bad guys do. I don't know if it's a good brain. Um, it worked. There were many escape attempts, one in the summer of 83, where he managed to have smuggled in a jeweler's saw, to which he affixed homemade handles, and had torn through two of his cell window bars before being found out. Clearly, he was a guy who could get things done, make things happen. The plan was to cut through three walls of bars and several windows before repelling 100 feet to the ground using bedsheets. And I have to circle back here. I almost forgot that on May 9th of 1982, Mason secured a spot on death row when he killed another inmate. Oops, missed that. Boyd Johnson, who had just arrived in prison the day previous, Johnson had been involved in a high-profile rape and murder case where he confessed on the Oakland Evening News. David Mason would later claim that a guard told him it was all right to kill him if he wanted to. Mason and fellow inmates possibly thought they were dealing with a rat here. Mason soon began claiming to have known Boyd's victim. He then was told by a fellow white supremacist that if he were to kill Boyd, who I assume was black, he'd get a promotion in the Aryan Brotherhood. It's said that Boyd was bragging of his crime and making sexual remarks to other prisoners, which didn't help his cause here. That night, Mason and others beat Boyd to death. Then Mason took some sheets and strung Boyd up in the showers as if he'd hung himself. This suicide was unlikely as Boyd had been on the news saying he hoped for a shorter sentence due to his public confession. The prisoners, incredibly, saw this broadcast as Boyd slept with the aid of a sleeping pill. He'd never wake. His murder occurred as an ambush attack in his bunk. When the guards were alerted, they found Mason trying to hold the dead man up to relieve the pressure on his neck. This is in the showers. Uh, Mason was forced to feign this assistance once Boyd had thrown up blood on him as he strung him up. 
The blood on Mason's clothing could now be explained away with his assistance, but the bruising and swelling on his knuckles could not be explained. He was thrown into solitary confinement the whole until this fifth murder that we know of could be sorted out. So uh, what else should I tell you about all this? Mason tried to alibi his way through the charges against him, but none of it made sense. He represented himself at times, fought hard to avoid the inevitable, but was eventually sentenced to death on January 27th of 1984, shipped off to San Quentin. He would spend the next decade slowly pulling back on his appeals and arguments. He got married at some point. <laughs> so he was slowly accepting what he'd done through uh, studying humanism, and he eventually came to realize he needed to be punished. His lawyer, whose name was Charles Manson, was convinced that his client had become insane when David Mason began requesting his execution be carried out. Once he stopped fighting and gumming up the works with appeals, justice came swiftly for Mason. And this is where I began the story. With my talk about final words and last meals, here's what drew me to David Edwin Mason in the first place. San Quentin, at the time of David Mason's execution, August 24th of 1993, just past midnight, was implementing the most expensive, not to mention dangerous, method of death for condemned prisoners. The gas chamber, a.k.a. the coughing box. Potassium cyanide pellets are dropped into a bath of sulfuric acid below a small chamber that looks like a diving bell, porthole and all, patina on it from the pictures I've seen, greenish looking like it's been underwater for centuries. The inmate would be strapped to a metal chair, and then is uh, sealed into the chamber. Everybody exits the room, watches from an external chamber to even that chamber. The inmate at that point is told to breathe deep. One of the initial inmates who was killed in this way, I don't have his name, I should have it. He told the um, witnesses that he would begin nodding if he was feeling any pain. And this inmate... Uh, nodded like crazy as he started to suck in air. That's what they tell them. They say, breathe deep, breathe deep. Though many can't help but hold their breath until they're red in the face, the inevitable gasping breath that they are forced to take soon turning them purple, it's a rough way to go. And I don't need to explain why they call it the coughing box. His last meal request? Mason only wanted to eat what the other prisoners were having, so nothing really to see there. He had a sandwich with some family that visited. Mason seemed relieved, unburdened. There's something about the truth and the promise of punishment that will humble a man, set him free. And speaking of humble, there was one request from Mason, a glass of ice water. So that was his final meal, I guess. David's last words? Well, the warden gave him a chance to avoid his grisly fate. At the entryway to the gas chamber, he was told there would be no execution if he wanted to call it off now. David Mason held that power over his own fate. His decision to drop all appeals could be reversed now, or even while strapped in. All he had to do was change his mind right now, or blink twice at his attorney once the chamber was sealed. And for a soul that had chosen so poorly at every crossroad, the final choice wasn't bad. As he stepped into the chamber, he looked back at the warden and said thanks but no thanks. I'm good. And that'll do it. Thank you so much for listening. I am also good. 
and I hope you are good too. For exclusive content, visit www.patreon.com slash darktopic. There's a link in the description. Those listening on Apple can sign up for Dark Topic Plus with the click of a button. There's a three-day free trial there that opens up exclusive Dark Topic episodes and more. Please share, subscribe, rate, and review the show. Um, I'm locked in to start off the new year. The plan is to be more consistent, so I'm hoping I'll be right back. I have a resolution not to drink or smoke or do anything fucked up while I'm working anymore. I try not to swear as much, too. You might have noticed through that episode, but I just dropped an F-bomb there, so sorry to any of the children listening. If you are looking for something in between episodes of Dark Topics, something free, that is, check out my new podcast, Marooned, Stories of the Catastrophically Lost. Uh, That one releases consistently because I'm working with a grown-up in Aaron of the Generation Y podcast. That's his last name of the Generation Y podcast. I'm not just desperate for people to know that I'm working with a highly successful podcaster. And uh, not just a gang of thugs like Kent from True Crime Kent Podcast, Deadbug of Deadbug Says on YouTube, or Leroy from Excuse Me, That's a Legal Podcast. And that's my cute way of shouting everything out that I'm involved in at the moment. I'm really happy with um, my schedule and and what I'm working on and all the people I'm working with. I'm uh, quite tickled. But my favorite thing to work on is Dark Topic, and um, I'm just excited about the new year. This goes a lot smoother when I'm hammered, I feel, or at least I feel, I think it does. Um, anyways, I just, I just drink and smoke in front of my family in the house in the evenings now while screaming at the television. I, I'm kidding. I'm done for the moment, at least. Well, uh, that case right there was uh, pretty f- messed up, eh? Effed. I'd uh, never heard it before. And there's a lot of um, information in the source notes. You might find something I even missed. I had to pour through all the court documents and all that. If you're interested in finding out any more, it's all there in the source notes. You might even find something, uh, like I said, that I missed. I hope I didn't. Um, And um, like I said, I'm finding Dark Topic very exciting lately. I really do have a push of quality content on the way. I thought this episode was solid. I hope you did too. I wish you all well. Until next time, keep those eyes cocked, those doors locked, and stay paranoid. Thank you.